0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Do you ever want to arrest for the murder of William Miller, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong.
1: Hey everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 6. In this episode we heard, I don't know, what I consider to be a pretty confusing string of stories or, or recalling of events from Danny Hartley and Dion Rhodes. Uh, stories that that change from one interview to the next and between the two of them, it's left us all with a lot of questions. I'm joined today by Mike Bussing. Hello. And Zach Weaver. Aloha. So, we're going to get right into your questions, uh, but real quick, I'll give you guys a little bit of an update on the studio progress, because a lot of people have been asking. We are, I think, days away from at least having a recording booth ready. We Zach was here last weekend, and we spent some time in the attic, ran a bunch of wires, and then uh, Mike and I on Monday spent all day uh, building and insulating and, and putting the wall material up in the studio. We got the air conditioning unit in there. So, hopefully... By next week, we will be recording in our actual soundproof, sound-treated studio instead of the garage I am definitely looking forward to that I know this is this is getting a little bit old, but we're still getting it done So speaking of wits, let's go ahead and get started Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator They call him the serial killer whisperer
2: You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it
1: but now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the Supercop really operates.
2: And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special.
1: From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: All right, we've got a couple questions here from listener Elizabeth. She says, are there any phone and or bank records still around that would tell us more about who Mr. Little spent time with other than those we already know and where he spent his money? It would be helpful to have an idea of how much he made at the gas station, how much he generally worked, what his expenses were, and how often and how much he was gambling.
1: Well, of all those questions, the only thing that I can give you a pretty solid answer on is how much he worked. There's a report in there where I think it was his mother said that Bill had told her that he wanted to find a full-time job. So I know he wasn't working full-time hours at the Clark Station. Other than that, as far as the rest of that goes, we don't have that information and it's it's another indication that the original investigators didn't have a real focus on victimology. Now, mind you, in 91, the forensics were different, the technology was different up there, but like, I haven't seen anywhere in any of the reports where phone numbers were listed, where bank records were pulled. These are all things that should be done for victimology. You're trying to identify and find those risk factors. And that's a, those are really good questions because that's what the investigators should have done. And I don't want to put that on them that they should have done that. I think we know more now than they knew in 91. But pulling bank records and and interviewing more people about Bill, I think would have given us a little more insight. I know that the uh, his time at the Leroy Pool Hall where he was playing pool and poker now uh, that seemed to be a regular occurrence i've come across several police reports where people have mentioned that that he was there uh they most of them said that he was never in much debt like he would he would usually bet like $20 at a time um but even but we don't have the phone numbers we don't have call records we don't have any of that stuff and i know that was available or it's possible to get that like i guess i don't now that i'm thinking i was going i was thinking from ed eight's case mm-hmm. we had all those phone records that were very helpful and figuring out what Elnor Griffin was doing in season 2 but that was 93 but it's got to be the same technology in 91.
2: Yeah, pretty close to it at least. Mm-hmm.
1: And speaking of wit, speaking of technology in 1991, uh boy was I wrong about the ATMs.
3: Yeah. That's partially my fault, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, I just really didn't I mean I guess I wasn't, you know, I was I wasn't old enough to have an ATM card in 1991. But that just seemed like, as I, I told the story last week about the, my aunt with the debit card when that came out, uh, but there was there were several people immediately on all forms of social media were like sharing articles with us that were like, nope, they were around in the 80s.
2: Yeah, we were pretty floored because we looked it up when we got done. We looked it up on Google when we got done, and we were pretty floored that it, when it said it, they started because yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that. It
1: seemed like some technology you wouldn't have expected that early. But. Right,
3: yeah. I think it said that the first ATM came out in like 1969.
1: Yeah. And then they got to be more common in the early eighties and they were really mainstream by mid eighties. Uh, so yeah, the, they were definitely around back then. It just, I, I guess because, you know, it's all data signal being transferred, right? Like you, so every once in a while, even now today, if you go into like an old gas station or something and, and use it, you'll actually hear, it sounds like the old AOL dial up modem. You'll hear it, and then connect and. Give your money. It just didn't seem like that was something around back then. But to be clear, yes, ATMs were a thing. However, that doesn't get us much closer to knowing much about this because there's no records of them of whether or not there was an ATM at that credit union, if there was a surveillance video, or if the police tried to procure that surveillance video, if there was one. I have a hunch probably. I'm gonna stop hunching and probablying because I was dead wrong last week. But but I mean back then it wouldn't have been like like a digital recording like you had later. You're talking you're probably talking about actual like reel to reel or VHS tapes if there was a a surveillance system in there. So I I doubt that was a thing or. I have to believe that the police would have.
2: Yeah, and you got you got to believe that resolution has got to be poor too at that time frame.
1: They didn't have 4K. They, they didn't have 4K. At I'm going to go least, out on a limb. At least in my I, right, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say there was not 4K yeah. uh, digital recorders in 1991.
2: Yeah, I mean, just look at look at some of the old surveillance stuff. You can't. You could, there's a person there. Yes, but right, but it's super grainy. Yeah,
1: and it was you know it was well over 200 feet away where the actual Credit Union building was from the gas station. So, yeah, I I doubt it would have been of any use if there
3: was one. All right. Next, she says, there appears to have been a tremendous amount of gang activity in this town in the early 90s. Was this gas station located in an area claimed by any particular gang as their, quote, territory? Well, I I don't know that there's nothing really in any of the police files that I've seen so far.
1: Uh, And I went through uh, Tuesday, yesterday. I I just said no construction. I'm 100 percent focusing on research and getting ready for this week's episode. And I so I I read hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents yesterday and there's nothing in there about whether it be the North Siders or any other type of gang in the police files. I did see that a lot of listeners on the fan page have done some research and there were some gang problems in the Bloomington Normal area back then, but I just I just can't see it being the types of gang problems you see in areas where we've worked like Dallas and Houston and you know where you've got big big gangs.
3: Now I can't remember where we heard this. I mean, we've been getting information from so many sources, but it sounded to me like the gangs that were in the area were affiliated or like branches of some of the bigger gangs out of Chicago. Right. Yeah. And we heard that well when, because um, you and I had a discussion last week about
1: Drew, the guy we interviewed last week that mentioned the Gaylords gang, and you heard me. I think I thought he was because he had he had called the um, the Northsiders, the Gay Prison Gang. Yeah. Kind of jokingly. So I thought he was joking again. I didn't realize, and you knew Mike because you have a friend that wor- actually works in the Cook County Jail in Chicago. Yeah. That's a that's a a real gang, a, a spinoff of the of the Latin Kings. Was it right? Yep. Yeah. So that's what it sounds like. The gangs that might have been present in Bloomington at the time were feeding down from the Chicago area, which is about two hours away.
3: Yeah, didn't Drew mention something about how when those gangs moved into the area, there was a massive push by law enforcement to to get them out and they didn't last very long in Bloomington. What well, what I'm wondering is if it was law enforcement or
1: other gangs now. Though seeing some of these articles that people have shared, it does seem like there was some gang activity in Bloomington at the time. And when he cuz all he said was, I think his exact quote was that shit got squashed real fast like within 2 months when the North Siders tried to move out onto the streets of Bloomington. I don't think the way most gangs typically work that law enforcement has the ability to push them out that quick or put a stop to it. But I think what can happen is other gangs like that's their territory. That's their turf uh, that aren't going to put up with that when yeah, another they gang put up comes with in it at all. Yeah. So I have a hunch that, the 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 impression that I got from Drew was more that that it was the other gangs that that squashed that and didn't let the north siders come into town. But as far as the the meat of that question could it have been another rival gang's territory? I, I don't think so. I first of all, I don't think this profiles as a gang-related issue in general. I mean, it just does doesn't. It looks like I agree with Jim Clemente, This looks like a personal cause homicide. This was somebody who had a, a problem with Bill, probably specifically. And then, and then also in reading a lot of the of uh, the reports and and talking to some people, there was a quiet area. Like Gina Luna who uh, was the attendant that was supposed to be working that night that spoke with Tammy at the fair a couple of weeks ago said that it was that that station was quiet. Always. It was one of those, the corner gas stations. It was mostly regulars. There weren't a lot of out of town people. And, and Mike, we've been there that area. It's not like you're right off the highway because there are major highways to go through there, but they're miles away and there's gas stations right there at the exit. There's no reason for a transient moving, whether it be a truck driver or whoever moving through that area to go five miles off the highway through town through a million stoplights to go to this tiny little gas station.
2: Yeah it sounds like more like a neighborhood gas station.
1: That's how she described it right is that it was just a neighborhood a lot of regulars and and you see in the some of those you know Martinez said you know he, he knew the attendant he and he said he usually had a guy that was in there when he closed who would be Danny Hartley uh, Gutierrez said that when he went in to pay for his gas that the attendant wasn't very talkative like he usually is like so so I think the attendants and the customers for the most part knew each other. Yeah. And so I, I don't think that the, I don't think the gang issue plays necessarily as far as like it being someone else's turf. So speaking of the drew
2: guy, that's a interesting fellow.
1: Oh yeah, he is. Yeah.
2: I want to hear more from that guy.
1: Yeah. I've, I I talked to him for, for quite a while, but some of the stuff we talked about was off, was off the record just, just in general. But yeah, he's a super interesting guy. He spent some time in and out of prisons. he's a smart guy, yeah, knows the area and, and the people really well, and you know, we'll probably hear more from him later because some of the stuff we talked about is just stuff that we haven't gotten into yet, which okay. we're going to be getting into very soon, like when we start getting into Jamie Snow, who was convicted of this, which is which is going to be happening this weekend, when we're going to start start getting into that but yeah he's a he's a very interesting guy.
0: She says, so
3: far, it sounds like the majority of the evidence in this case is witness testimony, which can be very unreliable. What would you say the biggest pieces of physical evidence are? Which, if any witnesses' statements we heard about in the first six episodes can be corroborated by physical evidence? Well,
1: that's the problem with this case is there really isn't any. I mean, there is some forensic evidence that was analyzed by the police. There was a, a footprint or a shoe impression that was pulled from the store. And they found some fingerprints. But you're talking about a public gas station that people are in and out of all the time. So there was nothing connecting. There was no piece of physical evidence in 1991 that could connect the killer to the victim in this case, to the actual crime. Now, there's possibilities of that now in 2019 because there's a lot, you know. So back then for DNA, they're looking for blood or semen to try to, to pull DNA. DNA was a new technology. Now we have MVAC technology and touch DNA and you can pull skin cells, you know, so I think there's a potential. I'm hoping that we can uh, maybe use MVAC technology on Bill Little's clothing because even though there's no signs of a struggle, I find it hard to believe that somebody wouldn't at least be at some point grabbing him, grabbing a shirt, holding him. You know, maybe when Gutierrez comes in, getting home saying, you know, don't you say anything it, like, with new technology. That's enough. So what's the MVAC technology? MVAC technology is a collection method. To get DNA, it's not a testing method. So t- typically, to get touch DNA, you use what looks like a Q-tip. That's a, a, just a cotton swab. Okay. They put a sterile solution on it. They wipe it over a an area, and then they they cut the cotton off and they run it through whatever they run it through to pull DNA out of it. So if I grab, say, Mike's shirt, Mike's and Mike's a victim somewhere. You can only do it, and it costs a lot of money for every one of those every one of those little Q-tips, right? So they they got to pick a few spots. We did it in Kyo Gove's case in season three that normal DNA testing method. We had to pick which spots do we think we might have found the perp's DNA on to send it in. MVAC can test the whole shirt and it's literally like a wet vac. So it takes that same serial solution and it sprays it on all over, say a shirt with high pressure and it just jars loose, get stuff that's down in the fibers, everything, and then it's got like a vacuum, an actual vacuum that sucks that back out of it. So you can just take it and work it over the entire shirt and it pulls it through uh, a filter like a little disc, instead of a swab, there's a cotton disc. that's a filter that takes all that sterile solution that you pulled off the shirt and suck it through it, and then you take that disc, and then you cut that into pieces and run it through the centrifuge. And it can get hundreds, I think generally 200 times the amount of DNA from an item than than a traditional swabbing method.
2: That's pretty impressive. Yeah,
1: so it's something where like a shirt in 1991 was completely useless if it didn't have blood or something on it. Whereas now that same shirt could render some results that could find some answers. But there weren't, there wasn't a lot of forensic evidence to work with back in 1991. They collected some stuff, but there wasn't a lot that could be done with it. But getting back to the eyewitnessing, and that that's the problem. And honestly, the more and more I look, and we're going to talk about this a little more on Sunday, Jamie Snow said this to me the first time I talked to him, that the biggest mistake they made in this case was releasing that composite sketch. Hmm. And it didn't make sense to me at the time. It's starting to make sense to me now because, and, and that's, and, and to be clear, Jamie Snow looks nothing like that composite sketch. He's not yeah. saying that they drew a sketch that looked like him. It's what he's saying is that composite sketch caused people to be looking for people that looked like that guy. And that was it. it it's eyewitness identification. It may not be right. And I I, I find myself wondering was Gutierrez the, the scar on the chin and the earring? Remember we talked about how detailed his description
2: was
1: Yeah, and we could he have been law enforcement or military like how did he give such a detailed description and it makes me wonder maybe he was wrong about that stuff what if he was wrong and the guy had a, a hair sitting on his chin that he thought was a scar there's people in these reports I'm seeing that were cleared because they didn't have a scar on their chin that they had leads that were indicating this person could be the person that killed Bill but his ear wasn't pierced or he didn't have a scar on his chin so therefore it couldn't have been him and who's to say that Gutierrez isn't
2: wrong? Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Or
1: that, you know, Martinez isn't wrong, you know, because it, it, we're also assuming that it was the same guy that Gutierrez saw in Martinez. Because, and, and I still believe that, 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 I mean, the odds of someone with the same build, wearing the same clothes, coming out of the same store 15 minutes apart, seems unlikely that it was someone else. But what if it was? That changes a lot of things. Yeah. If it was, you know, everything from our victimology. And then you have uh, or our profile of the case, because we're assuming this person was in there that whole time. But then you, and then you have Gutierrez, or excuse me, or Martinez, who later did a composite, which we're, again we're going to get into Sunday, that doesn't look anything like Gutierrez's. Yeah. But then they both picked the same guy out of the lineup. So so much of this case was involved, involving eyewitness identification. Gutierrez, to me, should have been the only one who we could really rely on because he was face to face with the guy. Martinez is in the dark in a gas station. Sees a guy in in a couple seconds, flash walk around the corner. The Luna boys are over two hundred feet away at night in the gas station. Gutierrez was face to face if that was the right guy, but we got to go back to what we've said many, many, many times before. Eyewitness identification is the weakest form of evidence in any case. Yeah, and unfortunately in this case, that's what the police relied on.
2: You know, it's hard to say that it couldn't be two different people because look at you and I, you know, we just posted a photo on the fans page Uh and people stated how many times we looked alike. Right. And we really don't look
1: anything alike. We really don't look anything alike. But we both have beards. We're both about the same build. We both have tattoos. Yeah.
2: So you leave a gas station. I come in 10 minutes later and leave the gas station.
1: Right. And for that matter, we both, you're wearing right now your Bridgman baseball hat from coaching. I have the exact same hat because we coach together. Yeah. And and so, yeah, it it could be very easy. For the two of us to walk in and out and people say, yeah, it was the same guy. Yeah. More to that point, they put out a composite sketch Let's say it was you that was in there and and committed a burglary or robbery or murder even. And so they make a composite sketch of you and the guy is about one, about 250 pounds. I'm probably get doing myself a favor and add some weight to you. Uh, <laughs> wearing a ball cap with a beard and they draw this composite sketch and his arms are covered in tattoos. And they put this composite sketch up, and then I come home, and my wife's like, "What the hell? That they just described you." Yeah, and so we're probably a hundred other people's, you know, wives when they come home, or friends, or kids, you know, th- that you look like this person. So it's 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 a pretty weak form of evidence, and that's why we just got to keep digging, digging deeper, and hopefully get some new forensic testing done and find not eyewitnesses, but witnesses in the fact that that have some knowledge from people talking about it.
3: Sounds almost worse than eyewitnesses. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're not wrong. Like some hearsay telephone stuff again. Right. But,
1: yeah. Well, and that's funny you said that because that's a big part of what Sunday's episode is, is about because it is worse in some cases.
3: All right. Next, we got one from Richard. What car did Danny Hartley drive back then? I'm wondering if it might be the same type of car that a witness said they saw behind the gas station at around 815 p.m.
1: All of the vehicles that were mentioned that I've seen in the, the police reports were all either brown or tan. And I don't know if they're the same vehicles. You know, there was the one that I think Mr. Brown saw around on East Holm. Uh, somebody saw a brown or tan vehicle parked beside the the station, one out at the pump, one in the alley. I don't know if they're all describing the same vehicle. But Danny Hartley was driving um, his mom's gray or silver Honda Civic, according to both him and Dion. They both described that. But interestingly. Remember, in our first trip to Bloomington, we were listening to a lot of the recorded tapes, and we listened to uh, a guy Jacob, who you all heard from in episode one, Bill's good friend from high school, and he in another interview he had given, and he was talking about how Danny Hartley was driving Bill's was a ranchero, El Camino. It's not an El Camino; it's like an El Camino. Okay,
2: because I I heard that several times that they said El Camino. Yeah, so.
1: it was. I think it's called a ranchero or ranchero. I could that have sounds it wrong. Right. But whatever, it was Ford's version of the El Camino. And and Jacob was saying, you know, why he was driving his car that night. I don't know where he heard that, but it doesn't seem to be the case, because there's interviews with Bill's dad, Ronnie Little, with the police, where he said that he had stopped insuring the car because the, cause Bill got a ticket or something, and so the insurance got too, too high, so he stopped insuring it, and he wasn't driving it anymore. But what I haven't seen is how the hell Bill got to work then. Mm-hmm. And we've seen the crime scene photos. Bill's Ranchero is not in the parking lot anywhere. No. So I, I I'm 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 curious to this day how Bill got to work because he, he apparently wasn't driving his car. His dad said his car was parked at his house. There were no other cars parked outside that Bill's driving. So I don't know. Maybe his dad gave him a ride in and then Danny was going to give him a ride home. I don't know.
3: Fiona writes, Why were the police so interested in what shoes Dion and Danny were wearing? Did they have footprint evidence? So there is, yes. And I've just started. Going through that, I found the file with all of the back and
1: forth with uh, police and the forensic laboratories. Remember in episode two, I think it was, where we talked about uh, they were doing the uh, the electrostatic lifts on the floor. The crime scene techs were mm-hmm. so. And, and I still don't exactly have an understanding of what that is. I don't know if it's a film they put over. I know they use like static electricity and it pulls dust up to make prints somehow or another. Hmm. But they did find a couple of footprints. And they're pretty, we were just looking at them before we recorded. They're, they're pretty clear. And it actually seems like they know what type of shoe they came from. But I don't know what was done with that. So I don't know who, but that's why they were collecting everyone's shoes to compare them to those prints. And the information is in there. I just haven't gotten deep into it enough to know whose shoes all were compared. But I know Dion and Danny. And it seems like everyone they talked to, they pulled their their shoes to compare to those prints. And and they're not like a police uniform shoe or boot it looks like a tennis shoe like a converse tennis shoe actually
3: alright next Sandy says do you think that Danny's story may have changed because there were drugs involved I don't know
1: Zach we haven't talked about this because you just got here Mm -hmm. what were your thoughts about the, the changing stories what do you think
2: you know to me there is time elapsed in these stories so it could just be your memory making things up or it could be that something happened that they're trying to not get in trouble for that's minute that at the time that didn't feel like it was a big deal kind of like season two with ed eights Mm -hmm. where he didn't want to get in trouble with his mom for taking the car
0: and so he told a little lie So I told a little
2: lie and it turns into a big thing right and maybe that's kind of the same thing is maybe it was something silly that happened that
1: i'm glad you said that because i i kind of feel the same way i do not think I, i will go on record saying based on what i've seen so far i do not think danny hartley has anything to do with bill's murder nor does Dion Rhodes. I don't I don't think that's the case. Not that we're not so open to everything, but I just don't see anything to indicate that. I think G- Danny was genuinely still is crushed by the loss of his friend, but something doesn't sit right. So something's not making sense because your 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 memory can certainly shift. We've talked about that over and over again that yeah. your your memory can be manipulated without you knowing it. Your brain will fill in details and you add things to the story, but when you go to Danny's 91 interview and Dion's 91 interview, you have direct conflicts there as far as who was with them and where they went. And I'll be honest with you, when I first heard that interview, Mike and I listened to it together and started listening, I said, oh, dude, I think this guy's involved. Okay. Like this story isn't making sense. He's he's adding details that aren't necessary. Something's wrong here. He's he's changing the story was the feeling that I got. But then as I look deeper into it, to me, in my opinion, it seems like Dion and Danny in 91 were trying to create a timeline of events to hide something. Yeah. That's that's what it seems like to me. Not to say that's the case. That's just what it seems like to me. But then as I look further into the case and the investigation and, and their connection to Bill, I don't think it has anything to do with Bill's murder. So my conclusion was exactly what you just said. Right now, my hypothesis is... I think that they they might have done something else that night. Okay. You know, they might they might have who knows, bought some drugs. You know, it could have been something as simple as that. You know, it's ninety one, it's not two thousand nineteen where who gives a shit about marijuana. Maybe they went to go buy a bag of weed and they're like, Where are you at that night? And they're trying to tell a story that doesn't involve them stopping at a drug dealer's house to get marijuana. Yeah. And so the story gets all jumbled up and has nothing to do with with Bill's
3: case. Donna says, are there any witnesses from 3 p.m. onward that can state if Bill was alone or if he seemed to have company in the store? No, we haven't come across. I
1: mean, there's a few. Oh, and speaking of which, I want to clear something up. So I missed something in the, I don't know, this past episode or the week before. It was a week before because we talked about it on the follow up. Wiley Holt, the guy that said that he came in and bought gas at 815. And we were asking, like, could that have changed our timeline? You know, if he's right about that time, and I said I think he's probably wrong about the time, it doesn't fit with anything. I completely forgot that in episode one, when we were going through the timeline of events, Wiley Holt was the cab driver that came in and bought the $23 on the on the register at whatever time it was. It was like 7.30, 7.40 or something like that. If you remember me going through, it was like we have gas and cigarettes purchased at this time, soda pop purchased at this time, gas Purchased at this time, and then a cab driver. That cab driver was Wiley Holt. Okay. So when they interviewed him, he said, "Yeah, I went in. It was like twenty-three. He had like the receipt. I think it was like twenty-three dollars. He bought twenty bucks in gas and a quart of oil, whatever it was." So his time is verified. He absolutely was not there at eight fifteen. It does not change our timeline. He was there earlier around. I don't remember the time, so I'm not going to guess. But it was before all the relevant events started taking place. But no, I haven't seen or come across any witnesses that said they saw anybody. I take that back. I did come across one where someone said that Bill was talking to a couple of guys that I thought might have been Danny and Dion. But they described one of the guys as being like tall and thin and blonde and neither of them fit that description. I can't remember which witness that was. Okay, Um, But sometime in the evening earlier, again, before the relevant events, someone did say they came in and saw him talking to someone earlier in the day. But it sounds like he was there alone other than when Danny and Dion were there. No one seems to say other than Gutierrez, who came, comes in at 8.05 and sees the, the guy with the scar and the earring standing along the edge of the counter right bit by Bill. Other than that, it seems like everybody just saw customers.
3: Isabel wants to know if you're going to continue your conversation with Danny. Has he agreed to come back on the show? And has he provided any contact information for other people he says were with him that day?
1: I hope so. I actually haven't spoken to Danny since uh, Sunday, since we put out the episode. I've I kind of waiting to hear from him because it seems like he's listening because he did listen to last week's follow-up, I know, because when I had said that uh, the name he gave me, Jenny's last name, didn't match any of my records, he texted me back with a couple different options for spelling Okay. for her name. I still haven't been able to locate her yet, but and, and I still want to continue to try to locate her. But I was I was a little concerned he might be a little upset by me putting out the episode where we kind of showed the discrepancies in the story. So I've just been kind of waiting to hear from him. If I don't, then I'll be reaching back out to him once you know once all the the dust settles from this because I do hope that we can go a little
3: further with it. Jennifer says, "If this was a mistaken identity, why is Danny still alive? I know that sounds terrible, but it seems to point back to Bill possibly being the target. What do you think? Yeah, I I don't think." It's a mistaken
1: identity. I don't think that's an option. Meaning, I don't think that Bill was killed because someone thought that he was Danny. Because that, that, there's a whole lot of reasons for that. One, So say, like, like how does that happen? I think about it. So what, like, someone hires So some, The only way would be if someone hired someone to go kill him. Yeah. Which seems odd, considering a couple of teenagers. You know, why, why is someone doing that? But because, And I say that because Bill and Danny look nothing alike. Bill was tall and skinny and Danny was much shorter and heavier set than Bill. I mean, the two look nothing alike at all. So anyone that knew them couldn't have mistaken the two for each other. So the only way that could happen would be if someone like hired someone they're in there for too long. I think it would have been very easy to clear that up. So I think that maybe it's still a possibility that Danny was the target. Although Danny did text me that too. He said, I wasn't into anything that would have caused anybody to want to hurt me. But I mean, that's, that that's what he's saying. But say that, for example, that was the case and that Bill might have been killed because Danny wasn't there or Bill was trying to protect Danny or something like that. I don't know. But I definitely don't think it was just it was a mistaken identity. Yeah. But to her point, yeah, it does seem odd. If the whole point was to kill Danny. Then why didn't they go through with that and accomplish that later? But then again, on the same t- at the same time, I don't necessarily think that the goal was to kill anyone. You know, I think the goal may have been to threaten. The goal may have been to get something out of them. Somehow, like Jim said, the conversation escalated. The argument escalated to the point where Bill
0: got shot. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
3: I'm trying to wrap my head around the killer taking two shots while someone was at the air pump because they could hear the loud noise, walking out, coming face-to-face with a witness, and continuing to walk away. What does that say about the killer's confidence, lack of reaction or response to being seen, and or potential relationship to the witness? Do you think any of those behaviors play a role in the criminal profiling? Well, yeah, I think they do. But
1: you know, I, we, we need to get ba- get Jim back on the show to talk about some of that stuff because we kind of didn't get that far i read that to be someone who is mature and confident and probably criminally experienced in my opinion because it, a normal person kills someone it's immediate panic yeah that's what i was is immediate panic whether you know internally or externally there's going to be this panic meaning wh- whether or not they have any remorse for what they did but now they know that body on the floor represents life in prison maybe the electric chair depending on where you're at I have to get away from that body now. I've got to get away from it. That's just a natural reaction. So the fact that this person was able to walk out and still look calm, not run, walk out and and see Danny and keep going, who knows if it's somebody who he recognized Danny Martinez. Because remember, you're talking about a, a neighborhood gas station full of regulars. Danny lived right next. Danny Martinez lived right next door to the gas stations. And maybe you recognize him. I don't know. But to me, that definitely fits into a profile of a more mature offender who has some level of criminal sophistication or experience, smart enough to know not to look like the guy that just shot someone when he was leaving the store. And that's a forensic countermeasure. If that's what was happening there, it's it's no different than it's on a smaller scale, but it's no different than whoever killed Elnora Griffin pulling her car behind the house and putting towels over the windows. It's not permanent concealment. It's temporary concealment. It's buying time. Whoever that profile to whoever did this knows they're going to be a suspect and they just need some time to distance themselves and create an alibi. Walking calmly out of that gas station while somebody's outside to me is the same thing, not necessarily concealment, But again, it's, I need that person standing at the air pump, I need them to not see me and immediately think, oh crap, what did that guy do? He's running out of the gas station, immediately I know that guy did something wrong, and so he walks out so that in those first seconds, enough time to get to a car and get the hell out of there, he doesn't want anyone to know that he just committed a crime.
2: And I don't think the number of shots really matter either. You know, she, in the, the questions, she said that there was two shots, and there was two shots, but I don't think that there weren't two aimed shots. There weren't two timed shots. You panic, you pull the trigger. Anytime there's a an incident like that, if you see, a lot of people open fire, they just pull the trigger. They're just pulling right. the trigger continuously. It's not, you know, I mean, there could have been five shots. Obviously, there wasn't, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think that the number two, like, I don't think it was bang. I'm going to watch you for a minute. Bang. And then
1: leave. Well, I agree, but I don't think I, I don't think it probably happened in that quick a succession either. Personally, because I I do think we're looking at a revolver. I don't know. We we didn't really come to a conclusion on that, but I think we both agree is probably.
2: Yeah, I think it's quicker than you'd expect. Well, I'm I'm looking at the angles,
1: right? So it's boom. At some point, his whole body shifts. Yeah. Before the second shot. So what I'm picturing in my in my mind is that first shot was aimed. I mean, that was he shot him right dead center in his chest, mm-hmm. right in his heart straight across yeah you know so that to me doesn't look like a panic shot i mean it could have been but it's that shot and bill collapses and it it, to me that second shot leans me more towards that personal cause the anger okay you know and and i'm curious your opinion on it too but that's what i see i see the the first shot and then a second one just like hit him one more time before you know bop Bop before he gets out of there.
2: Well, and see, that's, I agree with the second shot, but I don't think it's, I think it's still faster. A body will recoil faster than you believe. Right. You know, so if you're shot, it's not like shot and this massive, like, oh, I got to move. You know, right. it's, it's bang, you move, bang, you're shot again. Right. And maybe it was with that personal cause, but I honestly think it was just, I have to make sure this person is dead. Right. And it could have been th- th- that too, but I just. Because now he's seen me. Right. So it's two shots to try to make sure he's dead. But I don't think it's necessarily like two shots because I'm pissed at you or two shots because you're my girlfriend's new lover or two shots because of anything. you know, I mean, I just think right. it was it was countermeasures to make sure that that person is no longer talking.
1: And you could be right. It's, to me, it seems that like when you shoot somebody probably from about the distance, you and I are sitting apart right now, right square in the middle of their chest most people have their knowledge of what happens after that from the movies. Yeah. From TV. I don't see anyone pulling the trigger like that. Middle of the chest thinking, well, he might not die. I know that. I know from just just how anatomy works that with a with a with a 22 a shot to the chest, it, depending on what it hits, there's a possibility that could miss the heart. Yeah. Not hit the heart. I and, and and the guy could maybe die later but live long enough to say who it is but but most people i think that the first shot hit him and i don't think it's real significant the second shot but i think that 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 time gap if it's a cuz if it's a revolver it's either single action or double action so either it's got to be manually cocked for the second shot or if it's a double action it's got a long a long trigger pull it's so it's boom boom so i i just think there had to be if that's the case in either case there had to be a decision to make that second shot as opposed all i'm saying is as opposed to say a semi-automatic say you've got a glock nine millimeter as the, with, it's got damn near a hair trigger yeah and it's bop bop real quick that's very different to me than a than a, the long trigger pull of a revolver bop bop mm-hmm. the second time i don't know it could it could go either way i think well
2: and i think that time frame is okay i guess i'm what i'm saying by time frame is i don't think it was bang now i'm gonna stand over you and bang you know what i mean like oh no no i don't think that either so no so that's why I say that the second shot is really not super significant in my opinion, right? Which is probably totally wrong, but that's fine. But just in my opinion, I don't think well, no, it. No, may, it may very
1: well be. I I I think it's it's probably somewhere in between. Yeah, because I definitely don't think that it's that that other situation you described, where he shot Bills on the ground, he's looking over him and like f you and pops him again. Yeah, I think it happened in about that succession, pop, pop. But I just, I literally have an image in my mind of some guy shooting him and as he's recoiling and falling is being like one more bop because he shoots him, you know, weirdly up here by the collarbone.
2: And if you guys are not Patreon supporters, you should be because you can see how many times Bob just shot me in the chest on the video. Right.
1: <laughs> uh yeah. Yeah, there's you're missing out on all kinds of good time. Yeah, so I don't know. I think that but but as far as the, the profile goes, to me, and i am no more of an expert than you are, but to me the second shot plays towards that personal cause homicide so if, it, if it's just something for some reason the guy's panicked and whatever he's got to shoot him and it's just a pop shoots him in the chest I see that guy running out of there that you know pulling the trigger the second time and the walking out to me and Jim Clemente may completely disagree I mean because he's he profiled this as a younger offender basically with the, uh, the cash register drawer being gone for staging so who knows I mean I could complete, be completely off base but to, in my opinion the, those are two different things. Of course, the second shot to me supports the idea of it being a personal cause homicide. The walking out calmly tells me mature and more criminally experienced.
3: Aaron says, the phone call for Jenny. Can you compare numbers? See if they were off by one or two numbers of people involved. She's talking about the phone numbers here and if there's similarities between them.
1: Right. And you know, the issue is there, I don't remember if I mentioned this earlier or not, but we don't have phone numbers. They never pulled phone records. So unfortunately, we can't
3: do that. This one's from Cena. I don't know if this is an option or not, but I was wondering if we could find Jenny by looking through high school records or yearbooks if Danny remembers which school she went to. Maybe she can be found through class reunion groups. It's just a thought. That's a really good thought actually, and we've had success
1: with that before. Um all the way back in season 1, we went on class I went on classmates.com and found high school yearbooks and scoured through to find people that I needed to talk to. So that's a really good idea because I think that Danny may have the spelling of the last name wrong of her. But if you're looking at these are smaller schools uh, looking through a yearbook and you're looking for a Jenny or a Jennifer with you know last name that starts with an H, I bet it'd be pretty easy to find. mean, yeah. so I'll try that.
3: Roxanne says, what if the wrong number voicemail guy was talking about Gina Luna and thought Bill and she were having an affair? Was Gina married at the time? Did she have a boyfriend? I know Bill worked for her so she could spend Easter with her kids. Could the killer be a jealous husband or boyfriend? Yeah, I think anything's possible and, and I thought about that because so
1: Gina, I've seen her go by three different names in different articles. I think I've seen her I think her name was Gloria Jean, and I think she went by Gloria sometimes, Gina sometimes, and Jeannie. I saw one newspaper article where she was listed as Jeannie. So it's it's possible that, that they were talking about her. I mean, who knows? I think she was married at the time. But, I mean, I mean, it would, it would be it'd be really just a lot of speculation to say that that was a case. I haven't seen any indication in any reports that there was any kind of connection. I think, I think Jeannie or Gina was uh, significantly older than Bill. And according to Danny and the other reports I've seen, Bill had another girlfriend. He had that girl from Gibson City that he was seeing. I haven't seen any kind of indication that anything like that was going on.
3: I didn't know that uh, Gina Luna's name, her first name was Gina. Right, because in the reports it's listed as Gloria. Right, and that's just something I don't think many listeners caught either because it's something I just, just found out. So it's interesting it, when you think about the phone, the voicemail. Right. All right, our last one comes from Mrs. R. I think there was a statement made saying the robbery stopped for three or four years after the murder. If this is the case, why? Was someone arrested for another type of crime or moved to another state, die, etc? I think there must be some explanation for this so as I've dug deeper into these files and started opening up more and
1: more of the police reports, what I've found during the course of this week is that they didn't stop in ninety one There was a list that was put together by an investigator that showed a bunch of similar crimes, and in that list, there was this big gap, but what I found out was that There was a continued streak of these types of robberies at gas stations in the Bloomington area. And one of the people involved in those other robberies was, in fact, implicated in the murder of Bill Little. And that's part of what I'm going to be covering this Sunday in episode seven. So make sure you tune in in two days to that. We have a few people that were, in fact, implicated in Bill's murder that were investigated. And we're also finally going to hear from the man that was convicted in Bill Little's murder, Mr. Jamie Snow, this Sunday. We're going to start to shift our coverage into the investigation into Jamie Snow and what ultimately led to his conviction. So, again, make sure you tune in on Sunday. And before we let you guys go, Zach, you had an amazing interview on Made Us last week. Uh, You want to tell people a little bit about that? Because I think this is one that, if you haven't checked out Zach's show, Made Us, this is one to definitely check out because it had me extremely emotional listening to it.
2: So last week, episode 39 of Made Us was actually with Michelle Weaver, who happens to be my wife. And I want people to know, first and foremost, that I didn't have her on the show because she was my wife. I had her on the show because she has a story. She has an incredible story. And it's one about not becoming a product of your environment. She grew up in a pretty rough household, and she's really persevered through a lot. And her story is one that everybody needs to hear, and I I think that it's one that a lot of people would understand themselves, and a lot of people have gone through it themselves. It's crazy. I had
1: no, I have known Michelle for a long time. I had no idea she had been through that. You'd never know it. And, yeah. and hats off to you as an interviewer, because I've interviewed my wife, and it's hard when you know someone so personally to try to have a conversation without letting that seep in enough to where the listener doesn't get to to hear the full picture, because you know how to fill in those gaps. You did a great job with it.
2: It's hard because I know that I had to ask questions that were going to upset her. Mm-hmm. But I knew as an interviewer, you have to ask them.
1: Yeah. And you did. And she answered them. And it is an extremely moving interview. So check out last week's episode, episode 39 yes. of the Made Us podcast. And again, make sure Sunday you go ahead and tune into our show and listen to season seven, episode seven. And with that being said, I think we're all done. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Zach. Thank you. Thanks. See you guys. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday Follow logo was created by Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website. Just click on the Case Submissions button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth you can also connect with Mike at mbussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.